Well, welcome, everybody. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for what a beautiful day that you've created for us, and we thank you that we are called out of the world into the kingdom of your beloved Son. We ask, Heavenly Father, this morning that you would help us think well upon the biblical text, that we may, as a corporate body here at Gospel of Grace, incorporate these things that you've said to the churches, to us as a body, but also individually, that we would apply these things to us so that we may live lives that are more conformed to the image of your Son. We ask this in his name. Amen. This morning, notice we're going to be looking at the church at Smyrna. The church of Smyrna is only one of two churches that Jesus only has commendable things. And, oh, yeah, I got it going. Yeah, I've got to watch the level. Go ahead. Okay. Um, commendable things to say about it. And also, the church of Smyrna is known as the church of martyrdom. But before we get into Smyrna, every week I'm going to do a review of the previous week's church that we covered. And if you recall, we had covered the church at Ephesus. And recall that the church at Ephesus had both some commendable things said about it, but it also had a rebuke by Christ. Now, what was commendable about the church at Ephesus was the fact that they stood against the false teachings of the Nicolaitans. Recall the Nicolaitans probably got their name from that deacon in Acts 6.5. His name was Nicholas. Now, there are some scholars who said, well, Nicholas was perfectly orthodox in his teachings, and so his name was just used as a, basically a cult symbol for this aberrant group. But remember, we talked about the play on words. Nicholas means conqueror of the people. And what did he teach, or that group, that sect teach? Well, they taught immorality, licentiousness, just like Balaam did. Remember, Balaam could not curse God's people, so he got them to stumble by putting sexual immorality in their path. Balaam's name meant destroyer of the people. Nicolaitans, conqueror of the people. Balaam, destroyer of the people. We concluded that sexual immorality conquers and destroys the people of God. And so Ephesus was commended by Christ for standing against that heresy, against teaching that it's okay what you do in this body. If it feels good, do it. All the things that you hear. <laughs> I don't know what that is because we're not even... Uh... There's a hearing test. <laughs> yeah, anyone who didn't hear that, you need to get your ears checked. <laughs> So, yes, Myrna calling, right. So that was what was commendable about the church of Ephesus. Now, what was the rebuke? Well, recall Christ rebukes them for having loveless orthodoxy, but what did we say about loveless orthodoxy? We said the real issue out of 1 Corinthians 8 is that if you truly love, or you, let me say it this way, in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 2, if you have true doctrine, you love the brothers and sisters. And so I said it's somewhat of a misnomer to say that they had loveless orthodoxy. If they really had their doctrine down, it leads them to love Christ and love their brothers and sisters. And so that's what Christ had rebuked them for. Now, what were they to do? Well, the correction was three things. Remember, repent, and do the deeds that they did at the first. Remembering is what Bob has been teaching us about in the means of grace. You and I, as forgetful people need to constantly be reminded of, of the promises of God. And when we're remembered of what Christ has done for us, we remember our love for him, 
And if we love him, we love our brothers and sisters. And so part and parcel with remembering was to repent and to turn away from their lack of sound doctrine, which leads to love, and to turn away from their loveless deeds. And it says to do the first deeds. Notice the first deeds was connected to their first love, love of Christ and love of the fellow brothers and sisters. And so that's what they were to do. Now, remember, the promise that Christ gave them was to him who overcomes. Now, let me stop there. The overcomer, if you recall, is not some spiritual superstar, but according to 1 John 5, 4 through 5, it's a believer in Jesus Christ. 1 John 5, 5, it says, this is the one who overcomes the world, the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So you are an overcomer by being a believer in Jesus Christ. So he literally is saying to him who is a believer in Christ, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, certainly that tree of life, we said, was a reference back to Genesis 2. What happens when Adam and Eve sin? They're blocked from having access to the tree of life. And that's really merciful by God because if God had allowed access to it, Adam and Eve would have had eternal life but separated from God. Well, that's what damnation is being raised from the dead, thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented forever. So it was merciful that he restricted. Well, now we have access to the tree of life to live eternally with God. Now, we said there's also perhaps a parody given by John. The tree, the term for it was Zulon. Remember, that's referenced in the New Testament as cross of Christ at least several times. So we know that in the uh, temple at Ephesus, there was the tree of Artemis. Remember, the tree of Artemis was the symbol for the cult there at Artemis where you have thousands of criminals that would flee to have asylum underneath the tree, meaning that they had impunity to do their lawless deeds. The reason why the cult at Artemis liked that is because these criminals would mingle with their temple prostitutes and it would bring fertility to the land. And so if you were a criminal and you found refuge under the tree of Artemis, you had salvation from the law, as it were. But that's contrasted then with the tree of Christ. The cross of Christ gives us access to the true paradise of God. But the big contradiction is you and I are saved from the wrath of God. But it's not to sin with impunity. But one day you and I will have glorified bodies never to sin again. Do you see the big distinction between the two trees? I think that's the parody that John and Christ, I guess, through John was driving at. All right, now, any questions on the church at Ephesus? or comments or ideas, because we can keep moving. But I just wanted to review. So every week we'll review the previous, previous week's church. So the big takeaway for us is to remember that if we really have our doctrine down, it's going to cause us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we don't love Christ, we don't love our brothers and sisters, we have a doctrinal issue. We don't know as we ought to know. That's, I think, our big takeaway from Ephesus. Okay. Now, let's move on to bitter Smyrna. Smyrna's name literally means bitter. And the irony of that is it was the most beautiful city in all of Asia Minor. In fact, it was known as the crown. And you're going to see a play on words later where Jesus promises the crown of life to those who are faithful to him. Well, Smyrna was the crown of Asia Minor because it was so beautiful. It was arranged on a hill, and it was so beautiful, it actually glowed, some uh, scholars think, from the temples that it had and from the beautiful streets. So when the sun would set, it would actually light up a little bit. It was such a beautiful city, but yet it was bitter. 
it was bitter because so many Christians end up dying there. In fact, what's interesting is the term itself, bitter or smyrna, is a Greek term used in the Septuagint to translate the Hebrew term for mirror. Now, by the way, let me mention this. This is the time we get into things. If you ever see Bob or me or uh, Bob or I or maybe Adam or somebody use LXX, that's Septuagint. And that's a reference to 70. Roman, Roman numerals L is 50. And then the X is 10. So you have 50 plus two tens, which is 70. 70 scholars, apparently, according to tradition, were the ones who translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek in 250 B.C. Now, why did they do that in Alexandria, Egypt? Because you had so many Jews that were dispersed, okay, that were no longer speaking Hebrew. And so to understand Greek, that's what they did. So the Septuagint translates the term Smyrna from mor in Hebrew, which means myrrh. And so the interesting thing about that is myrrh, of course, was used as a gum for embalming. And this does not go unnoticed by several contemporary historians when Christians were being martyred. They thought, how ironic. Here you have this beautiful city, Smyrna, the crown jewel of Asia Minor, and yet the name is a bitter one. It's used for embalming. And sure enough, Christians are dying there in the droves. All right, now, why were Christians dying there? Well, Domitian, remember, he is the emperor of Rome. And once a year, he demands a sacrifice be accomplished. So you had to sacrifice, if you lived in the Roman world, to the emperor, declare that there is no lord except emperor, and then you would get a certificate. Now, the Jews, and Dana and I were just talking about this, the Jews were exempt from that. The Romans didn't want trouble with the Jews. They knew they weren't going to succumb to that. So the Jews in the synagogue were exempt for, from giving this sacrifice and therefore getting a certificate but guess what the christians ended up getting kicked out of the synagogue by the jews the jews were persecuting them so what we have is the jews start informing on the christians throwing them out and that's why later you'll see jesus call them a synagogue of satan because they cast out the true believers in the messiah so that they'd be persecuted in other words the jews are saying look these guys don't have their paperwork and they don't belong to our synagogue, so they're not exempt, get them. And so Christian after Christian after Christian ended up being martyred in Smyrna. All right? Something else that's interesting, the people of Smyrna were the most zealous for the emperor. In fact, they were known as being faithful to the emperor to a fault. That's going to be an interesting play on words later in Re Revelation 2.10. You're going to see it later in this message because Jesus asked you and I to be faithful to him. Why? Well, because he's really the Lord. And so the battle is who is Lord? Is it the emperor? Smyrna was faithful to him. Or is it Jesus Christ? And which crown are you going to live for? Are you going to live for the crown that those in Smyrna will give you? Or are you going to live for the crown of life that Christ can give you? That's the big contrast. Now, one thing I want to mention is here, Polycarp was martyred. How many here have heard of Polycarp? Polycarp was 86 years old, and he was put to death. He was burned alive at the stake. In fact, he was the 12th martyr in Smyrna. Why? Because he said, I can't quote it verbatim, but he says, for how many years I've known this Christ, and he's never done me any wrong. And he went to his death as a great martyr uh, for the sake of Christ's name. He would not bow his knee to the false emperor of Rome. All right?
So bitter Smyrna. Smyrna was extremely bitter for Christians, and it's in light of that that Christ's words are so comforting to the believers that were there. Revelation 2.8, remember Jesus is saying to John to write these things to the, to the angel. Remember we defined the angel as the human messenger, angelos. It's used that way several times. So he says, and to the human messenger of the church in Smyrna, write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. Now think about this. How significant is it that Christ is the one who was dead and yet has come back to life. In a town known for martyrdom and putting the saints to death, think about how significant that is. Christ is really the Lord. Yes, all these people in Smyrna, these pagans, are worshiping the emperor or maybe another deity, but it's Christ alone that has, in fact, conquered death. I think that's extremely significant to these people who are being martyred. In fact... Notice he also calls himself the first and the last. The first and the last is a citation here, as I just showed you, Isaiah 44. Three times in the book of Isaiah, God declares himself to be the first and the last. He is, in fact, the Lord of history. It's not the emperor Domitian. It's God. He's the one who rules history. Now, what's beautiful about Isaiah 44, 6, notice what it says. It says, thus says Yahweh. Remember, anytime you have Lord, all caps, that's a translation of Yahweh's name. And I like to say Yahweh because that's his name. He's the great I am. Okay, so oftentimes I'll say that so we realize that that's what it is. So thus says Yahweh, the king of Israel, and his redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. So certainly... By Jesus applying this title to himself, what are we concluding? Well, he's God. He's Yahweh, exactly. Now, let me show you an interesting way that this could be read. Uh, this would be the minority report, but notice, let's read this very carefully. Notice it says, thus says Yahweh. Okay, so we know Yahweh's speaking, and then it says the king of Israel. In Hebrew, this is called a construct. But notice the king of Israel is still Yahweh, Correct. Well, notice it says, and his redeemer. Now, the debate is, is his referring to Israel or is it referring to Yahweh? Because the king of Israel is Yahweh. Now, certainly, God does not need a redeemer, but maybe the implication is this is the redeemer that belongs to Yahweh. It's his right-hand man. It's the servant. It's the Messiah himself. And I think that that's a very likely reading. Why? Because the king of Israel is, in fact, Yahweh, and his redeemer is what? Yahweh of hosts. So now you have two members of the Trinity that are speaking, and what does the second person of the Trinity claim? He says, I'm the first and I'm the last. Now, all these years later in the book of Revelation, while his people are being faithful unto death, what does he declare to them? Once again, I'm the first and the last. The second member of the Trinity is God. And he is the one who has ordained all of history, so nothing can, in fact, hurt us. Now, let me just show you why I think... Remember, there's three citations of I am the first and the last in the book of Isaiah. I think Jesus specifically has Isaiah 44 in mind. The reason why is Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 20, is all about the certainty of God's promises. 
So Isaiah 44, chapter 44, verses 6 through 20, is all about the certainty of God's promises. Why would that be significant? Well, because if you're facing death, the one thing you'd want to know is that God's promises are absolutely certain. I think that's why he's alluding to it. Let me show you a little chiasm of verses 6 through 8. Verse 6, we just read that. We see that he's the king and he's the redeemer. And I think perhaps it's two members of the Trinity, and he is the only God. Okay, that's verse 6. Well, then we have this little chiasm here. Verse 7, he is the incomparable God. He's the master of history. And then it goes back in verse 8 to give more descriptions. He's the comforter. He's the revealer. He's the rock. He's the only God. So what's being accentuated here then is the middle point. God is the God of history. And therefore, if you're going to be martyred, he's the one who controls that. Nothing happens to you without God knowing it and ordaining it. What a great comfort. This is Romans 8.28 theology, that God causes all things to work for the good for those who love whom are called according to his purpose. God is going to work all things out. That's what's being stated here. In fact, notice here, I love this Isaiah 44.8. He says, do not tremble and do not be afraid. Now, let's stop there. Remember, in Isaiah's day, there was a lot to tremble from. You had the Assyrian invasion. The Assyrians were not nice people. The Babylonians were not nice people. If they captured you, they would abuse you. But the Lord says, if you trust in me, you don't have to tremble. You don't have to be afraid. He says, have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me or is there any other rock I know of none? The answer to those questions is no. Yahweh alone is the master of history. You don't have to fear anything. So I want you to think about that in your own life today. Some of you are looking towards some illnesses. Some of you have some financial difficulty. Realize nothing is going to befall you except that God ordains it. You don't have to fear. He is the first and the last, and he's ordained every single thing that happens, and it's all for your good. Believe it or not, in fact, I just talked to Norm where are you, Norm? There's Norm. He was just saying, you know, it was a tough week, but he saw God's handiwork in it, that God works out all the trials in life for our benefit and our good, for our sanctification. So that's the great promise, and I think that's why Jesus is alluding to the first and the last. What a great comfort to those in Smyrna. Now, we see next that Christ is the one who, in fact, determines who is a true Jew. Revelation 2.9, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, the first thing I want to point out is notice this idea of tribulation. We'll talk more about this at the end here, but it's thalipsis, and we've talked numerous times about it. But what's interesting is John is known for something. He uses what's called the ascensive use of the article. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, a fair way of reading this is that he says, I know your tribulation... And you take the and and you say namely. Namely, poverty, and namely the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not. So in other words, it's the poverty and the blasphemy that constitutes the tribulation they were going through. That's called the ascensive use of the article, and John is very keen in using that. And I think that's exactly what he's saying. So what was their tribulation? It was their poverty. Here the people in Smyrna were even stealing their possessions kicking them out in the streets. And then you had the Jews within the synagogue blaspheming them, saying these aren't believers. They threw them out. 
and told the Romans to come and get them. So their tribulation consisted of those things. Now notice Jesus is angry with the Jews here. He says they're the ones who claim or say that they are Jews, but they're really not. Remember, Jesus is the one who has the keys of David, Isaiah 22, 22. And we're going to talk about this later in the book of Revelation. He is the one who determines who is a Jew and who is going to be in the kingdom of Israel and who is not. Who determines? Christ does. All right, no one else. And so he is the one who determines who is a Jew and who is not. In fact, listen to what his apostle Paul wrote in Romans 2, 8, or 2, 28 through 29. Paul said this, he says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But, he says in verse 29, he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Now notice what's highlighted red. A Jew is one who is one inwardly. Now, what's he referring to there? Well, remember, as early as the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, the Lord had promised that one day he was going to circumcise the heart of his people. Now, why would he have to circumcise the heart of his people? Well, because you and I, in our depravity, in our natural state as sinners, want nothing to do with the things of God. We have a hardened heart. And so what God was promising is that one day he would regenerate people's heart, enabling them to believe. So he promises it in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. He promises this in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. He promises this in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 and 26. The great promise is that one day God would enable people to trust upon his son, and that makes you a true Jew. All right, so right now what you and I have to affirm is it doesn't matter what your racial background is. Remember Bob taught us in Galatians 3.28, there's no slave nor free nor Jew nor Gentile nor male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. All that matters is you're with the Son. And if you're with the Son, you're acceptable. Now, saying that, anytime you cite Romans 2.28 through 29, you'll be immediately accused of being a replacement theologian. What is a replacement theologian? A replacement theologian is someone who believes that the church has replaced Israel in its entirety as the people of God. Well, there has to be a caveat. Here's two things that we have to keep straight. And I want to handle this right now because now is the time to think about this. Two things we have to keep straight regarding being a Jew. Number one, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, the only way to enter the kingdom of God, whether you're Jew or Gentile, you're black, white, purple, doesn't matter, is by believing in Jesus Christ and being added to the church. That's number one. But number two, we have to realize that God is not done with the nation of Israel. One day, the nation of Israel will repent and en masse come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the kingdom is coming to that Israel. So that's number two. Now, where do we see those promises? Well, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 11 verse 26 yeah Romans eleven twenty six.
Notice Paul says this. He says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Now notice the phrase, all Israel there. All Israel has to be ethnic national Israel because whoever the Israel is being referred to there in verse 26 of Romans 11, they are enemies of the gospel, as it says in verse 28. Does everybody see that? Well, you couldn't be a replacement theologian and say, well, Israel there is really believers, both Jew and Gentile. Well, would believers, Jew and Gentile, be enemies of the gospel? You can't be a believer in the gospel and be an enemy of the gospel. And so here we see that there really is a plan for all Israel. And so what we see then, for instance, in Zechariah chapter 12, there's this promise that after the tribulation, one day the Jews in mass will look upon the one whom they had pierced and they will trust in him and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child is what the text actually says. Okay? So now I want also you to think about this. The promises that God has given to Israel are going to be literally fulfilled. And so turn your Bibles again, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 24 through 25. I want you to think about these promises, and I want you to think about the fact that all the promises of God are going to be literally fulfilled. How many of you would be excited about a metaphorical resurrection? <laughs> oh, great, a metaphorical resurrection, oh, great. No, we want a literal one, right? Would you be excited about a metaphorical? What, what if a radio station, I heard WCCO this morning, offered $1,000 for a caller, you know, and what if it was a metaphorical $1,000? Woo-hoo! No, the promises of God are going to be fulfilled literally. And here we have some wonderful promises in Ezekiel 37, verses 24 through 25. That's as far as I'll go. So Ezekiel 37, verse 24, listen to what Ezekiel writes. And this is around 585 B.C. He says, My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd. Now let me stop there. When he says that David will be king over them, remember David has been dead for about 400 years, has he not? So he certainly can't be referring to that David. So to whom is he referring? Well, certainly he's referring to the greater David. In 2 Samuel 7, that's the Davidic covenant. Maybe write that down. 2 Samuel chapter 7, the promise was that the Messiah is going to come from the lineage of David. And so oftentimes he's referred then to in the prophets as just simply David. Okay, so literally you could say my servant, the Messiah, but he's the line- in the lineage of David. He's going to be king over them and they will have one shepherd. Now remember, Israel had bad shepherds. Bad shepherds that always would lead them astray. Think about a good shepherd leads his sheep to green pasture and takes care of them. The bad shepherds of Israel led them away from the green pasture and towards the heathen gods, towards demonic beings. They were wicked and evil. But Jesus says, what of himself? He says, I'm the good shepherd. He was the one that Israel longed for. So one day, he's going to be reigning over them. He'll be king over them. Is he king over them now? The last I checked, it was Netanyahu. And I like Netanyahu, as world leaders are concerned, but he's no Jesus Christ, right? So this has not yet occurred. Verse 25, I'm sorry, he goes on, he says, And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statues and observe them. 
That's part of the regeneration. That's circumcision of the heart. Because those who are circumcised in the heart will trust upon Messiah. And when they trust upon Messiah, they're given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit that enables them to do that which is pleasing in God's sight. That's the Ephesians 2.10. We are created in his in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay? So that's what he's going to do. Now, verse 25, he says, They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, there's the Messiah, my servant, will be their prince for how long? Forever. Now, forever means forever, okay? This is a beautiful promise. Now, think about this. The land that's being promised, initially, remember in Genesis 13, God promised to Abraham, he says, to you and to your descendants, that's what it says in your English version. This is Genesis 13, 15. He says, to you and to your your descendants, I give this land forever. Now, the term for descendants there is the singular seed. So it's literally, he says, to you and your seed, I give this land forever. Now, let's think back in our minds. What's the very first seed promise in the entire Bible? Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. And so then the Old Testament unveils that the seed is going to come from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Judah, from David. That's why 2 Samuel is so significant. But when we're in Genesis 13, 15, the promise is that the land belongs to the seed. Let's fast forward. Bob was teaching us this in Galatians 3.16. The apostle Paul says in Galatians 3.16 that the seed was Christ. Now, why do our English versions have in Genesis 13, 15 descendants plural when Paul is saying that it's the one? The reason why is this idea of the one and the many. Who owns the land? The Messiah does. But because you and I have trusted in him, it's our land too. It's our kingdom too. You see, what he does for us by faith applies for us because we're with him. And so now the land belongs to all of us. It's our kingdom. So when you as a Gentile in Minnesota came to faith, and I don't know if you're in Minnesota, it doesn't matter where you were, but as a Gentile, when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you all of a sudden had a kingdom. You actually have a place for you and a kingdom, and a new heavens, and a new earth, and all sorts of great blessings. Yeah, Christy. I'm sorry, we don't have one. We're going... I'll repeat it for you. This um, Ezekiel 37. Yeah, yeah. How would the religious Jews of today read this, and what would they think this means? Good question. I don't know. I don't know what they would say today. I know they did take it messianically. They did take it as referring to the Messiah, this David. Oftentimes, I know in the book of Isaiah, they apply the promises of the suffering servant. They apply that corporately to Israel. Um, Perhaps they would try to do that. They still look forward to the Messiah, remember. So perhaps today I would assume that they would say, well, this is about the Messiah coming. Their big problem is they don't realize that he has already come. Okay, And unless they repent and believe in him, they're not going to be a partaker of this kingdom. So the fact of the matter is they've missed it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, by the way, for the record, um, Christy had asked, uh, how would the Jews today have understood this promise in Ezekiel 37, verses 24 through 25? And so that was my answer to that. Thank you. 
Yeah, Brian. And the only Jews looking at that would be rabbinical Jews studying the book, and no layman Jew is even going to open that up and read it. That's sad. Yeah, good point. Uh, Brian, had, I'm sorry, just for the sake of it, Brian had just pointed out that no regular Jew typically is going to open up their Torah or their Tanakh, their scriptures, and read the Old Testament. And so he was just saying this would probably be a rabbi who would look into the things like in Ezekiel 37. Yeah, excellent point. Thank you. Now, again, the big picture I want you to see here is, a, again, a true Jew is one that Jesus trusts in Jesus. Jesus defines who's in and out, but we can't jettison Israel. We have to keep those things intention. And there's no contradiction with that. Now, let's go back to this idea of tribulation. Remember, I had talked about this idea of tribulation, thalipsis, and I said from the time that Jesus Christ ascended into the heavens to the time that he returns to raise us up at the rapture, that's the time for thalipsis upon the people of God. Remember, Peter says in 1 Peter 4.17, it is time for the judgment to begin with the people of God. And if it begins with us, how much worse will it be for those who aren't saved? So the idea then is the time that we're living in is characterized by tribulation, philipsis, for the people of God, but it's not designed to punish us, but it's rather designed by God to demonstrate that our faith is genuine. So it's our, for our good. In fact, let me turn your Bibles again. I'm sorry, to ha- I just wanted you to go all over the place today. We're going to abuse our Bibles This is Romans 5, verses 3 through 4. I've hit this before, but I want to hit it again. So when you see Philipsis, this comes to your mind. Romans 5, verses 3 through 4, Paul says, But we exult in our tribulations. There's Philipsis. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. Okay, in verse 4, do you see that hope at the end? Remember, we have defined hope as being synonymous with faith. Hope is faith looking forward to the promises of God, the resurrection, the kingdom, etc. So the point is, what does tribulation end up doing? It builds faith. Because once you persevere and you remain in the faith, it's God's way of demonstrating that you really belong to Him. So God is even using Philipsis for our good. And what a comfort that would have been to those in Smyrna. In fact, this is what Jesus Christ is going to show them that yes, Satan may bluster, but God is going to protect them. Revelation 2, 10 through 11, Jesus says through John to those at Smyrna, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. The first thing we have to wrestle with is, notice the tribulation for 10 days. Some scholars take this in a figurative sense. They'll say, well, this 10 days is really synonymous with being a time of completion. In other words, 10 represents completion, and therefore their tribulation will one day be complete. Some think 10 represents a short period of time, uh, but an indefinite period of time. Some think that 10 represents a long period of time, though indefinite. But here's maybe a novel approach. What if it literally meant 10 days? Wow, okay, I I don't know, but it could be 10 days, and it could have been a 10 days that Smyrna actually encountered. Now, with that, there could be a possible allusion back to Daniel chapter 1, 
Remember when Daniel and his friends are deported to Babylon and the king wants them to fatten up and he's going to give them the king's food? Well, they say, no, we're going to eat our own food. We don't want to defile our food laws. They're going to eat their own food. And so they were tested for how long? Tested for 10 days. And so you have, think about the, par- the parallel. In Smyrna, they're living in a pagan land. They're tested for 10 days. Daniel and his friends are in a pagan land. They're tested for 10 days. The implication is if you belong to God, he'll bring you through. You'll pass the test is the idea. Okay? Now, notice the great promise. So I think it's literal. I think it's a literal 10 days that Smyrna encountered that was extreme persecution. I think we can take that literally. Now, what 10 days were that? We don't know. It's lost on us now. Okay? But that's, I think, the best rendering of it. All right? Now, notice here this phrase. He says, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Oops, that's supposed to come up there in a real subtle way. There we go. Notice he says, be faithful until death, and what do you get? You get a crown of life. I want you to think about the irony. Here you had the people of Smyrna. What were they renowned for? They were faithful. I mean, above all else, if there was one city where its occupants were faithful to the emperor and to declare that he was Lord, it was Smyrna. And if you were a faithful resident of Smyrna, and perhaps you were a real wealthy one and real well-known, you might even get a picture on a coin with a crown on your head because you were so faithful to the emperor. What Jesus is promising is that if you're really faithful to him, he's the true Lord, you're going to get a crown, but it's not going to be some pitiful crown where your picture is on a coin, but it's going to be what? The crown of life. What a great gift. Now, what's so beautiful about this phrase, crown of life, it could just mean crown of life, and there's literal crowns that are given to us, and I think perhaps there will be crowns. But what's interesting is in the Greek, let me pull out the Greek here for just a minute. Oops, there we go. Here is, these are two definite articles. You would translate these the, ton, stephan, I'm sorry, ton, stephanon, tes, zoes. Zoe, some of you probably hear zoe. Andy Olson here has a ministry called Echo Zoe. Zoe means I have life. Okay, that's Zoe's. Well, here's what I want you to see. This is Stephanon. That is the crown. So it's literally the crown of life. Well, this is in the genitive, and what can happen in the genitive is it can be used as what's called apposition. What if I said Norm, comma, who's a wonderful guy and always helps me put the tables away, on, you know, another comma, is going out for lunch today. In between the commas where I said, Norm always helps me with the tables, that would be appositional. It gives inf- more information as to who Norm is. Well, here, this could be used in the same way. It could be the crown, namely, that is life itself. So what is the great crown that Jesus promises to all of us? It's life. Eternal life. What greater gift can anyone ever receive? To have life without end. Yeah, that... Wicked Emperor Domitian, what does he have to offer? You might get your name or your face, I should say, on a coin. Woohoo! And then people can trade it thousands of years later at a, a coin show, rare coin collection. Right? But Jesus, who was Lord of all, gives you life. Which Lord should you serve? 
That's the message to those at Smyrna. That's the message to us, brothers and sisters. Okay, now, one other thing I want to point to. Here's the big theological issue in this passage. Notice it says, Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. Realize that when they're being cast into prison, it's not to await their sentence like, well, I might get 20 years in the clink or I might have to pay a fine. No, if you were in prison in the Roman Empire, it was unto death. So these people are going to be put to death. And Satan was doing it, yet Jesus is in control of it. He is the Lord. In fact, notice what he says. He says, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Once again, how are you an overcomer? 1 John 5, 5. Who is it that overcomes? He says, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus promises that he will enable his people to persevere so that the second death has no power over them. Satan is even used by God for his purposes. God is providentially in control of even the demonic beings, and they can do nothing to us apart from his will. So Jesus is the one who enables his people to persevere. And so what I want to finish on the next 15 minutes is I want to talk about the doctrine of eternal security. In evangelical circles, when you talk about eternal security, you're typically talking about the idea of once saved, always saved. However, we at Gospel of Grace, Bob and I, and I know Adam feels the same way, and the elders as well, we like to use the term perseverance of the saints. And the reason why we prefer that terminology is because perseverance of the saints means that true believers in Jesus Christ are enabled to persevere in the faith until the last day. So in other words, it gets rid of this claim where, well, yeah, Billy, he claimed to be a believer when he was 12, and then he lived for the devil his entire life and died an atheist. Well, once saved, always saved. No, if you're truly a believer, you persevere. But it's not because you're some spiritual superstar. It's because Christ and the very power of God enables you to persevere and to remain in the faith. And so that's what I want to lay out for you. That's what Christ is explaining to those at Smyrna. He is going to enable them to overcome even the second death. He is the one who enables them to persevere. So let me show you a passage in John 17. Now remember John 17? That's where Jesus prays on behalf of believers. Oftentimes when people talk about the Lord's Prayer, they'll refer to like Matthew 6, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Well, that certainly is a wonderful prayer. I would say that that's the prayer that Jesus modeled for us. Okay, but the actual prayer of the Lord on our behalf is recorded here in John 17. And listen to what he prays for. This is just one section because we don't have time to get into all of it. But in John 17, 15, Jesus says to the Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Now, this is a wonderful promise. Let's talk about this. Now, by the way, notice the term keep and from. You're going to see that combination. Keep is from terao, from is ek. You're going to remember these because when we get to Revelation 3.10, you're going to see the same combination of verb and preposition. Let me explain the significance of this. Terao means to guard, protect, or keep. That's the keep as it is in John 17.15. Well, let me explain the significance of that. In 1 Peter 1, Peter says that our inheritance as Christians is terao, it's guarded by God. 
So the idea of tereo is the idea of placing a guard. Think about a soldier with a rifle who guards something. But in this instance, it's not a soldier who is fallible, but it's the infallible, omnipotent God who is protecting us, the Holy One of Israel. So is there any chance, like in 1 Peter, if he's guarding your inheritance, that your inheritance is going to be pillaged by somebody? No. If the Holy One of Israel is guarding it, you're going to be good. Yeah. And that's what's going on here. So tereo is the idea of keeping or guarding, protecting, that sort of idea. And then the preposition from is ek. Now here's what I want you to see. Here's how ek normally functions. Think about this circle as representing a sphere. Let's just use a very common analogy. Let's say you're in your car. The sphere represents your car. Ek would be used with verbs of motion of you getting out of your car. You're proceeding out from the car. Maybe you go from Minnesota somewhere. You're proceeding out from Minnesota. That's the preposition act with verbs of motion. But with verbs of protection like terao, it functions differently. It functions like this. So here, think about the circle now representing the sphere of Satan. It's Satan's camp. It's all those that belong to him. What Jesus is asking for with ek and terao is that you're going through life and all of a sudden you fall, but God keeps you, he protects you. He never allows you to enter into the sphere of Satan. That's what's being referred to here in John 17, 15. And it is a prayer that God the Father answers every single time for, this, for his believers and those that belong to Christ. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29 one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. What's that? Yeah. I know, you're right, you're right. I have too many favorites. Yeah. You can only have one favorite, right? Technically, yeah. <laughs> Technically, right? I'm sorry, 10, 27 through 29. This is Jesus. Now, remember, he's the good shepherd here. Remember what the problem was with Israel? They had bad shepherds. One day, Ezekiel 37, there's going to be one shepherd. That's David. That's the Messiah. Well, here's the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd say about his sheep? He says, my sheep, not everybody. He says, my sheep hear my voice. Remember, hearing, akuo, not just hearing sounds go through your eardrums, but hearing in a saving way. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Let me stop there. Notice where it says they will never perish. That's the negation of the subjunctive mood. Now, here's the significance of that. Don't glaze over. The subjunctive mood has to do with probability. In other words, he could have just used the indicative. The indicative just says they won't perish. But what's being stated here is there's not even a possibility of their perishing. That's even stronger. So the strongest possible way to negate something is what Christ does here in John chapter 10. There's not even a possibility of any future perishing. That's how secure we are. But then he goes on. He says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Do you get the idea that no one is ever going to be able to be lost if you're a true believer? Because he keeps us, exactly, complete assurance, Brian. Then in Hebrews, it says, uh, 
First John, exactly. Yep. Of them, yep. You, Jesus wouldn't, you wouldn't be in the flock. He wouldn't be trying to hang on to you. Exactly. They went out from us because they were never of us. And that means that, look. Exactly, First John. If, if they don't actually persevere. Um, oh, by the way, I'm sorry. Let me just restate the question. Um, Brian's question was, if someone leaves, then leaves the faith and departs, that's an indication that they were never a believer. Is that a fair summary? Yeah. And that's exactly right. Yeah, if you leave the faith, that's why we like perseverance rather than eternal security. So eternal security, yes, but not eternal presumption. Okay? What verse specifically? 1 Peter 2, or 1 John 2, 19? 2.19. Was I wrong? That's not in Hebrew at all? Not the one you quoted. Not the one that you're thinking of, but yeah. yeah. I but think the, everything's in Hebrew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it probably is somewhere. It's the ideas, probably. There. Yeah. <laughs> so now let me just show you more of this idea in First John. I know uh, Mike did a wonderful overview on Wednesday of the book of First John. First uh, John five eighteen, Jesus or John says this on behalf of Jesus is we know that no one who is born of God sins. By the way, what does he mean by no one born of God sins? Does that mean we're all perfect angels? The idea is perf or present tense, meaning that you continuously do it. The idea is that you're just characterized by nothing but sin. That's what characterizes your life. No, you and I are those who are characterized by, yes, we fall in the mud puddle, but we repent and we get out. Okay, that's the difference. So now he goes, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, the phrase here, what's difficult, is he who was born of God keeps him. This, I think, we have to take as a reference to Christ here because notice it talks about keeping him. Well, it wouldn't make sense that it would have to say keeps himself if for the one who is born of God is referring to us. So this is an unusual phrase referring to Christ, but it would be the idea of the begotten one, the monogenes. So Christ then is the one who what? Keeps him. And notice that term keeps. Guess what term that is? Tereo. He guards us, and what happens then is the evil one does not touch us. So what we have is a scheme like this. This is how the New Testament writers thought. Think about it. You have Christ's camp, you have Satan's camp, and what God does is he keeps it separate. If you're in Christ's camp, Satan's camp will never infringe upon you ever again. The promise in John 17 isn't just to keep you from sin. It's to keep you from the evil one. If you belong to Christ you'll never go back. And that's the great promise that Jesus Christ gave to those at Smyrna. That if they belong to him, if they're an overcomer, the second death would never have any power over them. Listen to what Paul said in Colossians 1.13. He says, For he, that's God, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So when you were an unbeliever, you were in this camp. And when you were saved, the moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you went into this camp, and because Christ intercedes for you, and because he keeps us by his power and through his finished work on the cross, the two shall never meet again. Yeah, Celeste. Amen. 
Amen. That's wonderful. Um, let me just rephrase that. No, no, no. That, no, I'm just saying it for the sake of the recorder. Um, Celeste is bringing up the time where Peter in the Gospels was going to be sifted by Satan, and Jesus warns him of that and says, I've prayed for you in advance, Peter. And you're exactly right. What's interesting in the Scriptures, Celeste, and all of you, is we have two intercessors, two, uh, two counselors, two comforters. They're called the parakletos. The first, of course, is Christ. But when Christ goes into the heavenly realm, he lives to make constant intercession for us. What does he do? He sends us the second parakletos, which is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, according to Romans chapter 8, he intercedes for us, even in our prayers, with words too deep, or was it groanings too deep for words? Right? Because we don't even know how to pray as we ought to. So think about the situation you're in. Jesus loves you so much that he pays it all. He prays for you. He's in the heavenly realm interceding for you, but he loves you so that he sends you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, God, is with you and also prays for you as you don't even know how to pray for yourself. That's the kind of power that God has to keep us to persevere. Listen to what, how this, I think, affects the idea of the church at Smyrna and persecution. Romans 8.35, Paul says this. He asks the question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, there's the ellipsis, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? No. And he goes on in verse 37, he says, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. That's exactly what the Christians in Smyrna needed to know. That being with Christ, even though it seemed to the world's eyes that Domitian was Lord, Jesus Lord. And as you and I live in pagan America, Bob did a wonderful message about, um, it's sad, but it was, a great, it was a great message about how sad America is and its pagan idolatry a couple of Wednesdays ago. It's very sad. You and I live in a world that's becoming more and more hostile to those who love Christ. And they are claiming to bring peace. They'll bring destruction. They'll claim to bring financial security. They'll bring financial ruin. They're going to go after those of us who are intolerant in their, their eyes. And so what you and I have to do is persevere by remembering who is the Lord. It's not easy when day after day after day you see nothing but wickedness from the power brokers of the world. No, the real ultimate power broker is Jesus Christ. And that's what we have to remember from the Church of Smyrna. So with that, we have a few minutes left. Any comments or questions? Norm. Yeah, in church history. I know, um, Bob, you've done a lot of research in church history on that. Why don't you tell about the history of that, and then we can talk about the theology of it from the Bible. It was actually a service. It was a little later than the church history. Here, why don't you put this on? Yeah, make my life easier later. Yeah, and then um, reiterate the, the statement. Okay, the question would be about those who lapsed. Okay, they come under persecution and went off and hid somewhere and waited for a different emperor. They came back when things were more favorable. And then they wanted to be part of the church. So there was a controversy. It was a little later. It wasn't under Domitian. It was under Diocletian, which would be about 290, 290-something. And so the Romans figured out if you martyr the Christians, it doesn't do any good. It just spreads it. And there's more Christians all the time. 
And so rather than martyr them, they were forcing them to give up their sacred writings, the scripture. It's interesting, some Christians actually, they had confiscated the writings of the heretics, and they turned them over to the Romans. The Romans don't know the difference between heresy and the Bible. <laughs> yeah, and so there were various ways they dealt with this persecution. Some were thrown in prison and what have you. Others went and hid, and then when the persecution was over, came back. And that created this big controversy, and the dispute went on. Then there was a debate with Augustine in uh, 400 and something, yeah. <laughs> or 300. Where would it be? Fourth century. Yeah, fourth, fourth century. century. So, so now the question would be, what about the lapsed? If the lapsed come back, they went out of us, you know, from us because they were not of us. But if they go out, backslide, come back. The real issue is confessing Christ and being committed to the gospel. That's how we discern. If the Holy Spirit's at work, Christ will be confessed. Now, if somebody comes back just because they like to have friends or they like the church as a social, yeah, for a social institution, that's not coming back. But if they come back and they confess Christ and continually do, we have reason to receive them. But but I think in John, when it talks about those who went out from us, he's got in mind these antichrists who claim a special anointing, who denied the bodily reality of Christ, and were totally heretical. Not just lapsed Christians, but people who went off into something totally different. And it goes on in Second John, says, don't even receive them into your home. Because they had a different gospel and a different Christ and everything. They went out from us. They weren't of us. But a Christian who does confess the gospel, lapses, comes back and continues to confess the gospel, we should receive. Amen. All right, does that make sense? You know, a great passage. Um, let me just borrow this one Oh, no, second. go back to your time. Oh, oh no, that's fine. Um, one passage I was going to add unto that, Bob, I was looking for it feverishly, is the Second Peter 2. If you turn your Bibles to 2 Peter 2, verse 22, this is about those who don't return. This is about the uh, true apostates. And these are those who, at one time, they claimed to be believers, but they acted in such a way where it demonstrated they were not. It says in verse 22, what the true proverb says has happened to them, the dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing itself, returns to wallow in the mire. True unbelievers... Their doctrine and their deeds portray them to be pigs. That is unclean. But true believers, both in doctrine and deed, will demonstrate to be true believers over time. And that's exactly what Bob is saying, is that those who confess Christ, that's our key doctrine. And what does that doctrine lead to? Love of Christ and love of brothers and sisters. Those are not pigs who are wallowing in the mire. Those are true believers. And that will be demonstrated by their fruit. Yeah, so...